Hello and welcome to Murder on Her Mind. I'm Caitlin O'Malley and I'm your host of this podcast. Alright guys, well for me it's my Friday so I'm freaking stoked about that. Um, But for you guys it's Tuesday so I'm sorry. But uh, tomorrow's Wednesday and it's hump day and then you're halfway through the week and it's great. (laughs) Um, So for me my morning kind of started off extremely slow. I had to deal with like um, the CRA and EI and stuff basically trying to um, sort out uh, my past EI claims and stuff which was such a fucking pain in the ass. Two and a half hours to wait on the phone, get on the phone, the lady tells me to fill in this application then I do the application and then I call this other number and they're like oh you shouldn't have done that application so you're gonna have to call back and tell them to cancel the application. So I did, I had to wait another two and a half hours, my god it was painful but Lucky enough, I have patience with that stuff because I can just like run around the house doing a million things while I'm on hold. And then to top it all off, (laughs) this is so bad. I was typing up my story that I'm going to be doing today and I'm almost at the end and my computer's like, oh, it's at 4% battery. And I'm like, what the heck? I'm like, my computer's plugged in. I'm like wiggling at the side and next thing it just shuts off. My computer wasn't plugged into the wall. It was just plugged into my computer and everything got wiped. So I had to go back and rewrite everything. And I spent like two hours writing up this stuff that I'm doing today. Oh my God. And then, yeah, but my week has kind of been a weird week. Like it's been a great week, but some weird shit has happened. Like I think it was on Wednesday night. Um, I pre, I always pre-make my lunches for the next day just to try and see, save money and stuff. And I was making myself a taco salad. So instead of like having bread with, or like, you know, like uh, the wraps or whatever you use, like the taco shells, it's off the corn taco shells. I was like, I'm gonna actually put some in the oven and broil them and just make them crispy and just put two in and then chop them up and have like it in my salad so I'm not having as much bread. So I'm going around my kitchen, I finish cooking, I start cleaning down my cooker, my, my stove top after, you know, doing like the ground beef and stuff. Uh, minced meat whatever you want to call it and I'm like hmm my stove top seems like really hot because it was like steaming under the cloth I was like okay whatever go over and start washing up and as I'm washing up I'm like oh my god I was like my little taco shells and I was like oh my god my taco shells and I run over I open up the oven door boom fucking flame in my face the oven inside was completely on fire so I'm like okay so I closed it and I thought for literally a split second I was like Okay, I have a fire extinguisher. I got my fire extinguisher out. I was about to use it. And then I was like, Dad, get down here. I was like, the oven's on fire. And I opened it again just to see how big it was. And it was even bigger than it was before. I was like, fuck, 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 fuck. This is bad. So I go running up the stairs after I close the oven door. The oven door is not open. I would my coworkers asked me that. And I was like, no, I did not leave my oven door open while it was on fire. Um, and I went upstairs to my dad. And I'm like, Dad, I'm like, come downstairs quick. And he's like, okay. He's like coming down. I open the oven door and he just like gives me like a little slap off the back of the head and he was like, for fuck's sakes, Caitlin. He's like, what on earth were you doing? And I was like, I was just trying to make like little taco shells. And he was like, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. And I like passed him like the, <laughs> the fire extinguisher. And he's like, do you think I'm going to fucking use that? And I was like, yeah, because it's on fire. He's like, absolutely not. He was like, there's no need for that. And he just like takes it out with his hands, like with obviously like a towel. And he just pops it on top of the stovetop. And then he's just like, now we just let it burn out. And I was like, okay. And then he just walks back upstairs again. Meanwhile, my basement smells disgusting. Just smells of burnt taco shells. So anyways, the next, or yeah, I guess yes, 
yesterday, Thursday, so the next day, I was walking home from my work. So I have like a 15 minute walk to where I park my car from downtown. And I'm like thinking to myself, I was like, man, like there's been a lot of like collisions in Calgary yesterday or recently with like, you know, people just getting hit, not even hit and runs, just people getting hit by cars. And then they have to like, you know, investigate it and shit. And they're looking for like witnesses and whatever. And then there actually has been hit and runs as well. And then there was a white Tacoma right next to me. And I was like, oh my God, like imagine if that car that's parking right next to me just lost control and I got rammed into the wall. That's what I think about all the time. It's so bad. <laughs> like, what the fuck? So anyways, about a minute later then, I'm crossing the road and there's a car opposite me and he has, I have the right of way. I have like my little white mat. And so he's technically supposed to yield to me while I'm crossing the road because he's, he's turning left at his life. So I'm in his way basically. And he's in a big, massive black Dodge Ram truck. This thing was huge. Next thing, he comes flying towards me. When I say full fucking steam ahead, he went for it. He was gonna run me over. And I just stood there screaming. And as he got close to me, I kind of like ran and jumped out of the way. And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like literally at the top of my lungs, I am screaming. And he's trying to roll down his window to say sorry. I shouldn't even be laughing because he could have fucking killed me. Like it actually was really bad. Like when I told my dad, he's like, I don't find that funny. He's like, he could have killed you. And did you get his license plate? I was like, no dad, I did not get his license plate. I was like, because he didn't actually hit me. (laughs) But like... I almost got run over. And that's happened to me like once or twice. But like, seriously guys, please, please, please. When you're walking downtown or really anywhere and you're gonna be using crosswalks, fucking take your earphones out. There's people, we're constantly daydreaming. I always daydream too. Like I'm desperate for daydreaming. And I was daydreaming when I was walking the road. I was just kind of like looking around my place. And I was like, is this truck not going to stop? And lucky enough, I just like looked in time. But please stay off your phone. Please take your earphones out and just pay attention. Because accidents do happen. And that would have been completely an accident. He just didn't see me. He wasn't on his phone or anything. Um, Not that I could see anyways. It happened all so fast. But lesson learned keep your eyes open when you're crossing the road even if you have the right of way i had my little white man that was saying that i could cross the road it's not like i was jaywalking or anything like that please 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 oh my god i cannot believe if i was looking down on my phone i literally would have been a dead woman i would have been squished i would have been a pancake on the fucking road anyways so that was my night and then i came home and i was like mm, i'm gonna make myself a little protein shade after my workout I forgot to put the lid on my shake and it literally exploded all over my face, in my hair, on the floor, on the ceiling, on the cupboards, on the countertop, everywhere. And I just washed my hair. I was like, for Christ's sake, I was like, what is happening this week to me? And then this just happened too when I was at record, pre-recording. I was like, right to call all my stuff and it all disappeared. I was like, okay, somebody's out to get me. <laughs> But yeah, no, at least I can like laugh about it. Like that stuff doesn't make me mad. It honestly like kind of makes me laugh. So I'm like, my life is just one big comedy. I swear to God. Like if someone was recording me, half the stories I come and I tell to work, I swear to God, they don't believe me because it's like, who the hell does that happen to? Well, you're looking at it. It happens to me. Um, Yeah, so <laughs> that's kind of been my week. It's still been a really good week though. And I was really happy with how like, my work week and everything planned out so and i'm excited for tomorrow it's gonna be great so
so yeah that's my life <laughs> but uh yeah i'm excited for this episode this is something that has just come out literally in october 15th um new evidence you know finally revealed this man was absolutely innocent so i'm really excited about this episode um i also cannot believe i'm on episode 12 already like this is going so well and i'm really enjoying it and i hope you guys are too and i really appreciate everyone who's giving me the feedback like even if it's just like oh like it's just like something small like it it really means a lot to me and i don't think when people give me those like small compliments it's like crap like this makes me so happy like i i want to keep doing this and it's it's nice to hear that so i really appreciate the messages that i randomly get um throughout the week and stuff so anyways guys i hope you enjoy listening uh we are going to be doing the christine jessup case so enjoy and happy listening Alrighty, so today we are going to be doing the Christine Jessup case. Um, apologies, I don't know what is going in my head, but I keep on I keep on to say uh, Justine because of uh, Christine and Jessup. Like it's my brain keeps wanting to say that, so I might have to re- like repeat myself a few times and correct myself because I just keep saying that. So, um, Christine Jessup was a girl who was murdered on October 3rd, um, well, it was believed to be October 3rd um, in 1984 in a town called uh, Queensville, which is north of Ontario. And it's actually a very small town. At the time, like in, you know, the 80s, early 80s, I guess you would say, um, it only had 400 people in it, or like 420 people or something like that. So it was a very, very small town. And crime was just not a thing that occurred there. Like, massive crimes. Like, it was just never heard of. Um, So, on the Wednesday afternoon in October of 1984, um, she had planned to meet a friend after school to go to the park. Uh, She came home, dropped off her bag, and she was never seen again. So, she came on her school bus. She made this plan with her friend. And in other resources as well, I saw that she actually found some change in her house and she went down to like the can or like just the um, convenience store, just a couple of, um, couple minute walk down the road. And he was apparently one of like the, the man who owned that little shop was probably one of the man who's seen her last. So um, I could only find that in a couple of resources. So I'm not 100% sure if that was true or not, but they do know for sure she went home, dropped off her bag and was never seen again. Um, and then it may have been like minutes later after her mum came home because apparently her mum and her uh, older brother um, were out of the dentist and they just left her there. Um, well, not left her there. Like, she was coming home from school. So they, she was just going to let herself in her like by, by herself. And you know they lived in a small town. Like, these people said they never even locked their doors. They would always leave their kids at home, like, um, which seems completely normal you know like especially in a small town like that you're you're, you know your kid's safe to get off the bus and then just pop in the house um so anyways that evening when she realized okay like my daughter's not home yet and her mom's name was janish and robert was the father's name um they just kind of been looking everywhere before they called police they got neighbors they got she called like all um Christine's friends mothers and fathers probably all the parents to see like if maybe she went to this house that house or if they'd seen her around town whatever nobody had seen anything 
So when evening came that night, she started to panic. And then she was like, okay, something is not right here. She's not coming home. So then they decided to call police. Um, which is such a devastating thing. Like, I can't imagine what it is like to lose a child. And I think the worst thing about these cases of abduction or missing is the fact that you're still hoping that they are still alive. And it's a very scary thought process to be like, no, like, I'm going to try and remain as positive as I can through this. And hopefully she'll just show up. Hopefully she's just, like, hiding somewhere, playing some silly game. You know, I can imagine that's kind of like everyone's thought process. And then as it goes on and on and on, you're like, well, shit, like this is now actually starting to get terrifying and there's a lot of uncertainty and it's it's very scary. So the next day after that all happened, a massive hunt was underway. It seemed like the entire town came out to scour Queensville and the fields around it. What searches couldn't know was that Christine was no longer nearby. And almost three months later then, on New Year's Eve, Christine's body then was found in a rural road more than 50 kilometers from her home. So it was kind of like a old like farmer's field. Um, and that's like a good, like say like 45 minute hours drive from where they were. Like she'd been taken. And unfortunately she had been sexually assaulted and stabbed multiple times. So it was a very gruesome, horrible death for a young nine-year-old girl. Like absolutely horrible. So now the Jessups knew for sure she was gone for good. Once again, much of the town tuned out this time for Christine or turned out for uh, Christine's funeral. Um, She then was actually buried um, adjacent to the Jessups home. Um, so there was a, a graveyard right next to their house there and you know at the funeral there was undercover like reporters and everything like that just to see who would show up and taking photos of everything so um, and this church could only hold I think it was just like under like 200 people and like 250 people were trying to show up and it was the middle of winter uh, in January like January in Canada no matter where you are I think is bitterly cold like January through March in Canada is just so cold um but yeah so it was very sad like all her friends from her class all kids her age were showing up as well to the funeral so the close the location of where Christine's body was found meant that it it fell into Durham Durham Regional Police to investigate they weren't having much luck at first but a few weeks later Janet Jessup mentioned her neighbor I always forget how to say his name. It's Guy Paul Morin. It looks like Guy, but it's Guy. And told police that he was a weird type of guy. Morin lived with his parents right next door to the Jessops. The 24-year-old worked as a furniture sounder and played clarinet in the community band. He didn't know Christine or her family well, but police interviewed him and already collected a hair sample for him. Um, so how they did that actually was pretty interesting. They got someone to go undercover as a hairstylist into the school where he would do his band practice and take a piece of a hair sample. So an undercover police officer was like, I'm a hairstylist. I'm going to snip a piece of your hair off. Like, oh man. Because I don't, I believe you cannot do that in the States. People cannot, um, do that like that's a thing that still happens in Canada unless it's changed recently but I remember what like uh, doing the other case as well another case that I was reading about um these two guys and they killed this whole family and 
um how they actually found out was they got police to go undercover to like hang out with them and talk to them and pretend that they were like drug dealers or something and i don't believe you can do that in the states because it was a u.s documentary that was covering this canadian case um so a forensic specialist deemed the hair was microscopically similar to the hair found on the necklace of christine's body police suspicions grew they had the fbi construct a profile to the killer um literally that fit more and like they didn't even try and look elsewhere like they were very like um what's it called tunnel vision where they were just focused on him and they would try and find anything no matter what he said they would try and twist it around to make him be guilty um so he maintained his innocence but was put on put on trial for murder in january of 1986 in the london ontario courtroom the crown brought forward the hair evidence and fibers found in christine's clothes prosecutors constructed the timeline given to the more an opportunity to kidnap christine after he got off work before Gemma jessup got home there is also a stunning testimony from two cellmates who swore more and confessed to the crime while in custody i'm undercover police officer told court that Morin, while in jail claimed that he said red rum the innocent and red rum backwards means murder so murder the innocent um so these people like he burst into tears he was like i killed her i killed her and when in fact like these are just people coming in it's more like hearsay than anything there was really no evidence and then of course an undercover cop in the in in the jail um kind of solidified everything for the court so um ruby also did something that caught many so ruby was his um morin's defense lawyer so uh ruby did something that caught many by surprise he introduced psychiatric evidence uh that his client was a schizophrenic that he was severely mentally unwell it was ruby's way to explain some of the unusual ways that morin spoke including the expression red rum for the innocent in the end ruby told the jury there simply wasn't um convincing evidence to convict this his client and almost two years after police first interviewed Morin, the jury found him not guilty. It was a letdown to police and prosecutors as well. If anything, the unchallenged evidence that Morin was a schizophrenic only seemed to confirm their belief in Morin that he was the right subsect, subject and suspect. <laughs> and he got the jury all wrong. So the Crown appealed the verdict. Uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal found that the fault in the trial um uh and there was a there had to be like a new trial ordered um it gave the jessup's new hope for justice but morin but for morin it meant that his ordeal was not over yet at morin's second trial much of the same evidence was um produced the hair fibers the so there was also fibers they when they went to go um i guess investigate and kind of look into his house and stuff and his car they found fibers in his car that also match fibers that was on her clothes too um so and then of course the hair and then the jail cell confession the timeline given more the opportunity to take christine all these things were adding up for the second trial morin's lawyer at the time uh jack pipolski like ruby before him countered the question of all evidence so that this guy was english he believed that he was innocent so he came in for his second trial and he was like absolutely not this guy is innocent 
Um, there's no way that he did this and he's just getting wrongly convicted and evidence is being put against him when they're not even trying to look for anything else. They were, again, tunnel vision, only looking at him and him only. When, uh, but this time the jury found Warren guilty. Uh, and yet almost eight years after their daughter disappeared, the Jessup believed this verdict had brought justice for at long last. Finally, someone has paid for Christine and the murder that had happened to her. Um, and they believe that he was guilty and they thought that, you know, this is it now. They can rest, they can relax now that they've found out who this, who had murdered their kid. Two trials, two different verdicts. Now it was Morin's defenders who would seek appeal. But before that could happen, a new extraordinary piece of evidence would turn this case upside down one final time. A tiny, a teeny, tiny, teeny, 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 tiny bit of DNA from Christine's clothes changed everything. This is why we need modern technology. We should be thankful for modern technology, modern medicine. We need these in our lives. People who are stuck in the past, you know, there's just so many different things out there that I just don't agree with, but we need these modern technologies and modern, you know, medicine for this reason so we can help protect the innocent when they are proven guilty so but before that could all happen a new extraordinary piece of dna that was found in her clothing it changed everything the science of dna testing was not available when christine's body was found in 1984 but a decade later a sample could finally be extradited and proved that morin was not the killer his conviction was overturned and Morin was freed. It was an incredible moment in Canadian judicial history because it was clear that something in this criminal justice system had gone terribly wrong. Well, it did. They, these investigators at the beginning, these two investigators at the beginning, didn't even bat an eyelid at anyone else. They didn't even try. And no matter how he pleaded and said, even in court in his first, tri- his first trial, or his second trial, actually, um... He blurted out. He was like, I did not do this. He's like, I did not kill her. He's like, I am innocent. Um, he believed it. And I, I'm glad that he like stuck with himself and saying that he didn't, you know, if he was so mentally, you know, well, why didn't people just try and convince him that he did do it? You know, like, no, he, he wasn't. He was still a smart man and he was not stupid and he's not weird just for playing fucking clarinet. Like, Christ, am I weird because I play the fiddle? Like, fuck off. Like, I just found that so frustrating that... I know this is back in like the 80s or whatever and it was right after the 70s when everyone was like oh my god like there's fucking serial killers everywhere but um yeah like it's just that whole thing where it just it just didn't seem fair just based off of this evidence that they were trying to put towards him so the Ontario government called for a major public inquiry the inquiry would uh last 10 months 120 witnesses were called, detectives, prosecutors, forensic specialists, even the jailhouse informants. And the Jessops, Janet, Christine and brothers Ken, both testified towards this. But now, however, the Jessops had come full circle. They no longer believed their neighbour was guilty. And they too wanted answers from the justice system. One critical piece of information was that Janet and Ken arrived home the day Christine disappeared. They had actually first told police it was 4.10. Police had determined that Morin could not have got home from work till 4.15, so they suggested that the Jessup would have to uh, got home later. Both Janet and Ken changed the time 
um, thus preserving the evidence theory that Morin had an opportunity to take Christine. So it's actually really sad in, in the one part of the documentary I was walking, walking, watching when Ken was like, he's like, I was only like nine years or he, no, sorry, he was like 13 years old. And he was told that, you know, to say that his like watch was broken, that he got the time wrong and blah, 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 blah. And they're basically trying to like force this piece down his throat. So, um, Coffin was a critical of police interviewing techniques and how they collected evidence. He also determined that the hair fiber evidence was given was too much weight and that there was, there was no need to objectify the scientific testing. He concluded that the testimony of jailhouse informants was blatantly unreliable and that the tunnel vision affected police and prosecutors to concept that he defined as an overly narrow focus in particular theory. Kirk Mikan, the author of Red Rum the Innocent, a book that studied the Moran case, um, he exhausted that basically, he, he basically believed that the whole time through this whole entire trial, that nothing was adding up, everything was unfair, and he really wanted to make that clear in this book, so Red Rum the Innocent. It actually looks to be a pretty good book. And in the documentary too, the CBC documentary, um, I think it's Crime Beat, he is just so well-spoken, so, so well-spoken through um, through this, and when you're watching him, he just, he stuck, he stuck by him the whole time. So, he felt police investigators may have got too close to the Jessops. They became like family members and that drove, I think, a lot of what went wrong in his case. End quote. Mackin believes the original police investigators were inexperienced and under a great deal of pressure to solve the crime. They zeroed in on the Morin. So what happened was too, because it was right outside Toronto, um, all these media people are coming and they're they're constantly down the police's throat like okay what's going on give us an update give us an update give us an update we need to know what's going on um you know it's not it's not too far outside of or outside of uh, Toronto so all these major major um broadcasting people were coming and they were trying to interview and trying to put pressure down this case of what is going on so the police were most certainly under a lot of pressure but they also were not trying to look elsewhere um, so at the inquiry, one of the police investigators apologized to Morin and one of the prosecutors, Susan McLean, tearfully testified that she was, quote, not proud in having been involved in prosecution of someone who's innocent, end quote. It was now the summer of 1997 and the chief of the Durham Regional Police, Trevor McCarthy, of Form Morin, quote, a full, unequal and unconditional apology for all our mistakes which led to the wrongful conviction, end quote. Kaufman included that what occurred were, quote, serious errors in judgment and often resulting in lack of objectif- ob- sorry, objectifying rather than outright maliciousness, end quote. Together, the three, Miss Melgard, Marshall and Morin, inspired the creation of an organization known today as the Innocence Canada, which is investigates impossible wrongful convictions in Canada. That was one of the change. Uh, that's just one of the changes that came about after this inquiry, which I'm glad that that came about because, um, you know, they talk about this a lot on like true crime, um, podcasts and TV shows about the wrongly convicted. Like, could you imagine going through 10 years of your life, if not more, 12, 13 years of the finger constantly being pointed at you 
saying that you raped and you murdered that girl and you live right next door to these people and you had to face them every single day. You had to walk down the street and you had to face these people. And I believe that even still, if they found, like when they find out who the real killer was, there's still these people who are so brainwashed into like, nope, I bet you he was still involved. I bet you he still had something to do with it. Like this whole thing, like it's, it's such a dangerous path to go down. And it's so scary how many people are actually wrongfully convicted and put in jail for stuff that they did not do especially for something of murder and rape and anything along those lines it's very very scary thing so i'm glad that the innocence canada is a project that is happening and it's still currently happening so james lockyer a key figure in the group lawyer for Morin, says the point forward of the justice system no longer relied as much on jailhouse informants uh, he said that new measures were implanted, implemented to ensure that the forensic evidence will be more properly assessed. And one of the inquiry's key, uh, sorry, key recommendations appears to be coming about 25 years later. The federal government has announced that it will set up an independent tribunal uh, to review claims of wrongful convictions. Moran knows that only too well. He seemed to emerge from his 12-year ordeal remarkably Gen- uh, you know he was pretty like happy right he was pretty genuine about the whole thing like he's not like oh like you motherfuckers like he's not aggressive about the whole thing he's like you know you know what it's time for me to celebrate and i actually remember in the two in the documentary that the during the s- second trial when he um when they thought they, he was going to be guilty and that he was going to be put in jail and stuff uh, the head prosecutor was like, well, I think it's time for me to go have a beer and celebrate. Like, he was so sure that that was it. So, anyways, Morin accepted the apologies from the police, as well as others, and he settled for more than $1 million uh, from the province of Ontario to his family. He got married, had two sons, and has a lar- he's largely stayed out of the public eye ever since. For police... The years-long focus of Moran means that the trial of the real killer Christine Jessup long ago went cold. Hundreds of tips, interviews, and DNA samples have been checked, but so much was lost over the years, including evidence from witnesses. But, says Gallant, one of the th- one thing could help years later, and that is DNA and only DNA. So, dun dun dun. Years later. Through DNA evidence, police announced on October 15th of 2020, so it's October 30th right now as I'm recording, that's 15 days ago, I was watching the news and all of a sudden this popped up and I was amazed because I actually hadn't heard of this case until 15 days ago. Um, obviously, I haven't been in Canada, so even stuff that was coming out throughout the years on the anniversaries and everything that it was a cold case file and yada, yada, yada. Um that this was a thing and Chris's parents were sitting right next to me we were in the cabin out in Bragg Creek and they're like oh we remember this this was so heartbreaking and so sad and I was like holy fuck yeah I was in Ontario and that's where you guys are from I was like, that's crazy so through DNA evidence police announced on October 15th semen found on Jessup's underwear was matched to uh last week to the Toronto resident of Calvin Hoover then 28 unfortunately Unfortunately, this motherfucker, he died in 2015. Christine's brother said uh, two Toronto police officers came to his home on Thursday morning to tell him they had identified a man who murdered Jessup. Quote, 
I am grateful that the Toronto police stayed on the case and have now finally solved it, end quote, Morin said. When DNA extradited me in January uh, 1995, I was sure that one day DNA would reveal the real, who the real killer was, end quote. Speaking on CTV News, Toronto directly, uh, Locker added that today's news came right out of the blue. Quote, it's something I have been waiting for for many, many years, like so many others, and it was very satisfying and great relief to know what the real perpetrator of the crime had done and he had been identified, end quote. Um, it's a shame he can't be apprehended or punished for what he's done because he has died, but nevertheless, to have identified the person is tremendous. So for the cutting-edge technology side of things that helped police you know, find out that it was Hoover. Hoover was identified as a potential suspect through gene- uh, genetic genealogy tracing that was uh, finally confirmed and is assisting blood sample f- uh, through police. Um, sorry, police had said. I don't know if you guys remember too, that's how they caught, was it the I-95 killer? Um, also through, oh no, wasn't the I-95, was it the Golden State killer? I think it was the Golden State killer, sorry. Um, was through also uh, genealogy testing. So the genetic genealogy tracing, which was processed from the case in the United States, develops a whole family tree potential matches rather than a single match. While the semen sample, which was analyzed again this year, did not give an immediate match, the cutting edge genetic genealogy tracing was able to create links with two families. From there, authorities were able to match the DNA to Hoover. Hoover had been, Hoover had an unrelated criminal history, was never considered a suspect during the initial investigation, but did come up as a person of interest, police added. Police said Hoover and his wife had a neighbor acquaintance relationship with the Jessup family at the time of her death and that he may have worked with her father. So they never even thought to like look at this guy because you know either way that, that's that's what I was trying to wonder when I was like listening to the case and the news I was like hmm okay so he's from Toronto I was like what made him go to Queensville like what made him go there to this tiny teeny small town and then you know at the very end you find out that he had an acquaintance to like one of their neighbors and you know it's just it's just insane to me like did he have any past things that have happened you know that he you could also link him to like i'm sure they would if they were doing like the dna testing and everything but i just thought that was so amazing and it's just so freaking amazing too with with how now we can rely on dna testing like you know like all those ancestry like genealogy things and shit like it's just so crazy and um, i was talking to one of my clients yesterday about it actually at work and she was like now can you tell me why the fuck you would decide if you were a murderer or killer or some sort of like person who should be out of the eyes of the law why on earth you would join like ancestry.ca and everything like that and that not this guy did that he didn't do that it was through other family other through his other family members that had done it that that's how they he got caught but um it's so true like I bet you there's so many fools out there. And it's the other thing too of like that whole narcissistic thing of like, mm, I'm never going to get caught. They're never going to catch me. And all of a sudden then here we are and you've just been caught. 
So I'm glad that justice has finally been served. Um, you know, I hope that man, Morin, he, you know, finally got to like live the rest of his life, which it seems like he did. But what a horrible thing to have to go through even for 12 years of your life. And he was only 25 at the time. Like, that's very young. Like, that's very, very young to just have that whole freaking trauma go through. So, um, and I'm glad, like, his wife as well stuck through, uh, stuck with him the whole time too, which is very sweet. Um, so, yeah, that is the story of Christine Jessup. Um, you'll probably hear lots more podcasts and lots more things coming out about it. And I'm sure there's going to be much more coming out about it in the near future but I just thought this is something that I should talk about I wanted to talk about it last week but I also wanted to keep like my like Halloween theme going um so yeah I hope you enjoyed this um again let me know shoot me a message how you felt about the live episode with my friend Jenny um like I said the one thing I really want to work on is um how it sound on my on my side of things so with my recording device so we'll see um and uh yeah please don't forget to rate review subscribe i hope you have a fantastic week um and yeah tune in for thursday's episode and don't forget to shoot any recommendations i love i love to get recommendations off you guys and everything so um yeah thank you very much and bye-bye